With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. I'm Tiff. And we're back again. You're going to notice a little different voice off the top. That's yeah, that's me. Not Janelle. It's Tiff. I'm Tiff. Uh, Tiff, for long listeners, you, it's been a while, actually, since you've, like, appeared officially on the show. Yeah. I think it was the Woodstock House was the last time I was in one. Yeah, we recorded, like, a short little... It wasn't so, even like a full episode. It was like a short little like five years intro ago? thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's needless to say, been a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as you can see, Janelle is not with us currently. She is a very busy lady. <laughs> and I mean, she's been very open about working on her uh MFA, her final MFA, I think. I don't know. Um, but she has decided to take a short hiatus from the show. Just as she finishes things up um, for that, which I get it. <laughs> I've been see I see her stories and her Instagram and everything, and like Homegirl is really busy. Yeah, it's not a life I would choose for myself. No. <laughs> um, but we're hoping she's gonna be back soon, and we'll miss her until then. Yeah. But oh, Christmas. I know. I know. We will definitely. Uh, miss having Janelle for all of our holiday shenanigans. <laughs> but we look forward to her returning soon. TM. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the meantime, Tiff has graciously decided to step in uh, for a couple of episodes. And then we're going to be having some special guest hosts. Yeah. Is kind of what I've decided to do in the interim. Switch things up a little bit. Yeah, this was totally not an emergency, and I didn't step in, like, at the last minute. Yeah, no, not a not an emergency. You know how we do things around here. Everything is always an emergency, because yeah. we can never make decisions about anything. But I'm glad that you're here, because you're always behind the scenes. Tiff is our sound producer, Yeah, editor. I guess so. I don't know. She does all of the sound things. Yep. That's me. And lets us use her house to record. <laughs> 
Yeah. And provides uh, water and coffee sometimes. Rum chata. And snacks. Yeah, I have a coffee and rum chata this morning. It was very, very nice. Just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> um, but I am super glad to be back. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, we took like a three-month break. We, we're we still putting out episodes, but we personally were not recording for like three months, which was, I'm not going to lie, pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> the less responsibility I have, the better, I feel like. God, you know, I told myself every time that I was just going to edit them all at once. <laughs> no, I just kept the same schedule i didn't give myself a break <laughs> yeah i know i was like the only one who really doesn't have a break is tiff but i could have given myself girl. one <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i'm very excited to be back uh talking about some crime and things and stuff and stuff so with that why don't we head over to the newsroom So this week, our news comes from actually friend of the show, uh, Michael. Yeah. Sent us some Philly news, classic Philly news, and it is a food crime. Yes. (laughs) Which is almost the best combination combination of things. So police are saying, this is from the Inquirer, uh, there are six suspects who robbed 15 boxes of frozen meat early Monday. So this would have been November like 11th or 12th. Oh, yeah. Stole 15 boxes of frozen meat from a refrigerated tractor trailer parked outside the South Philly Jetro. Um, not far from Lincoln Financial Field. Made off with all the cheesesteak meat. <laughs> it was like 12.30 a.m. Um, the truck driver parked outside a cash and carry warehouse store and all of a sudden felt like there was something going on in the back of his truck. And he got out and saw a guy <laughs> taking meat <laughs> out of the back of his trailer uh, there were two more people waiting in a nearby Ford Explorer and basically were just like, do you have a gun? Because we're only taking a little bit. And then took the meat and then left. <laughs> <laughs> so in total, it was about $7,660 worth of meat. Holy shit. They don't have any idea like what specific cuts of meat were taken. And they had dropped a box of steaks on the streets while they were trying to get into the getaway car the truck driver was uninjured and they haven't made any arrests so this is like so he wasn't even like willing to defend the meat he's just like you know what you do you (laughs) take it yeah i guess (laughs) which is good there's part of me that's like looking out for your fellow man you know what i mean like because i wasn't sure if it was just like i don't care about this job at all or like it could be that too (laughs) Like, equal parts, maybe? (laughs) You know what, though? Probably coming from Philly, it's... I just don't really give a shit about this job. (laughs) It's like, whatever. They do not pay me enough to stop me from taking the meat out of the back of my truck. I would have been like, you know what? Can you take a couple boxes for me, too? I'll meet you. Yeah, just leave it in this place. I'll be there in, like, two hours. (laughs) Maybe that's why they left the box of steaks on the street. Here's one for you, buddy. Here you go. (laughs) 
So if you're in Philly and you see like meat for a really good price, <laughs> maybe tell the police or don't. I mean, no, just just buy it. Just buy it. Treat support, yourself. Support small businesses. <laughs> We're coming up on Small Business Saturday. Isn't that a thing after Thanksgiving? Oh, my God, it is. Yep. Support your local small business meat salesman (laughs) from the back of a truck. (laughs) Um, Moving right along to Netflix and Kill. This week is a Max and Kill. Woo! uh, With a documentary series called Telemarketers. Uh, this, I remember seeing trailers for it and I was really looking forward to it because it has all this old video shot on like VHS, um, like camcorders, (laughs) like the big ass ones, um, because they started filming in 2001. So like, it was like, just as like camcorders were phasing out, right? Um, but this guy, Sam Lippman Stern, he started working as a telemarketer for this company called Civic Development Group, and he was calling on behalf – at the time, it was largely uh, like Fraternal Order of Police fundraising calls. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they send you like a sticker. Yep. Okay. But they're all scams. Yeah. I'm just going to say off the top. They had these scripts that were engineered to like – coerce people into giving them money um, and lying about how much the company itself was taking and how much it goes to the actual fundraiser. Um, Later in the documentary, they talk about how uh, the, a lot of like the FOP organizations were working hand in hand with this Mm -hmm. uh, telemarketing group. And it goes even further when this particular company later was ordered to pay $18.8 million, um, which is the largest penalty ever handed down in a consumer protections case. The company like closed, but then they just opened as a different company using the exact same scripts. Um, So anyway, this guy, Sam Littmanstern, started recording everything that was happening at this particular, it's called CDG is how they refer to it. Um, because they were literally, they were like employing people straight out of prison. There were people there doing heroin in the bathroom and oh my God. drinking beers and smoking weed. Because as long as you were making sales, they really did not care what, what was going on. So he decided to start bringing in a camcorder and recording all of this from when he was working there. And he sort of um, buddies up by, with his coworker, Pat. Uh, Pat Pespis, who was like one of the top salespeople, but he's also this heroin addict. So anyway, the two of them decide they're going to make a documentary about CDG and start investigating. And they essentially start from when he starts working there in 2001 to, I want to say like 2022. Because they were like recording and he got out of the industry and him and Pat sort of lost touch for various reasons. He like went to rehab and was getting clean and doing all this stuff. And then they get back together and start investigating again. And they do interviews with people from like the FTC and the um, like a senator from the government and this woman who was also investigating these telemarketing firms and what they're doing. It's a very like, I don't even know how to describe it. I don't want to say slapdash, but like, if you and I decided to go make a documentary. (laughs) And it's hilarious because at one point, um, Sam Lippmanstern, who is sort of the, uh, like, narrator throughout all of this, is like, 
yeah, it wasn't like halfway through. It's like, yeah, it wasn't until this point it occurred to me that Pat might not actually be really good at this, any good at this at all. (laughs) And he really wasn't, but he was good at like asking the questions that nobody wanted to ask. But at the same time, when you're making a documentary, there's these like, I don't know, you, you have to ask, you don't necessarily want to ask leading questions or tell people what to say. You know what I mean? And you want them to be able to speak. So you don't want to ask too many questions because you got to give things air to yeah. like let them expand. It, it's just, it's, it is wild watching these two make this film because there's also this like personal relationship between Sam and Pat who are like buddies um, and these people that they used to work with. And at one point Pat goes back and starts working for one of them to record like the things that he's being told by like, his managers and people running like the current telemarketing schemes out there, which have to do with uh, super PACs and um, political money. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's wild. Okay. So in my head, it was like this undercover whole thing, but then I'm thinking those camcorders were freaking huge. So how are they hiding it? So the company knew about it or the people that they were the people that worked there knew about it. Nobody gave a shit. Like, they, this was, like, the Wild West of offices. Um, it was crazy uh, because they have footage of people just, like, dicking around in the office. But like I said, as long as you were making the sales and you were hitting the numbers that you were supposed to, they really didn't care huh. at all. Which, frankly, is how all office environments should be. Yeah. I'm just saying. Maybe without the heroin. I mean, less drugs than <laughs> drinking at work, but, you know. I mean, maybe some drinking at work, just less. I've definitely been in workplaces where I've had mimosas. Wouldn't that be nice? Approved. It happened one time and I was like, this is amazing. I hated that company. It was the worst one to work for. (laughs) It was so bad. But you know what? All it takes is one mimosa to get me to hang on for another like three months. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, so it's called Telemarketers. It's a three episode series, I think. Pretty interesting. It's kind of a a wild ride. I was going to say, like, everything. When you brought it up, everything I was thinking of just didn't make any sense. They're just willing to do it. Yeah. So it sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because they try to get, like, um, interviews with people from, like, FOP organizations who immediately shut them down. Like, everybody from the FOP, like, the Fraternal Order of Police is like, we don't do fucking interviews to press at all, ever. Mm-hmm. Because FOP. They're terrible. <laughs> anyway. So check it out. It's on Max right now. Uh, give it a little, give it a little watch. Yeah. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Um, we are going to be talking about murder. Yep. Uh, but honestly, I don't feel like mine's more like medically gruesome. Talk about a lot of medical stuff. Mine's not really graphic. Oh, good. So it's pretty tame. Oh, good. Well, someone dies, but (laughs) what do you expect (laughs) for for this kind of podcast? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, Tiff, tell us this was your choice of an episode. This is so fun doing this with another person. So, tell us what we're talking about today. We're talking about assassinations. Okay. Because as far as true crime goes, Confession time. I'm not a huge fan. Oh my god! So really, <laughs> I'm actually I'm a little surprised by that. I always just assume everybody is the same level of me on everything. 
So, like, I enjoy this podcast. I enjoy listening to you and Janelle talk Dude, about it. Because you have to listen to every single episode. Every episode. <laughs> um, but, like, I don't go out of my way to pursue it usually. Sure. So. Okay. Yeah, here we are. So this was, like, an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of a special interest of mine. So, okay. like, in that I happened upon it and... I knew it was crime. So when you were like, okay, well, you get to pick a topic, I'm like, well, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it was funny because when you asked me if we had ever covered assassinations, we have, I don't think, literally ever done an assassination episode. Ever. Or even That I can think of in recent memory. We might have touched on it a little bit here and there, but like, yeah, not that I can think of. So that was a very good choice. Claps to you. Yay. So what, what, tell me what, what's going on over there? What are you going to talk about? So, okay. So first I want to preface that I also picked a topic that is really difficult to talk about in bad taste. Okay. For me. Okay. I mean, it's not really jokey. Oh. Uh, but it does include a statement from Ronald Reagan. So okay. we get to look forward to that later. <laughs> Okay. Because he was president at the time. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Go Reagan. Not really. Not really. He's horrible. (laughs) But that, I'll wait for that at the end. You know what? This is not that kind of podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. We should say off the top, this is not a political podcast, but I feel like there is something about assassinations that are just inherently political. Political, yeah. So. Yeah, whoops, my bad. (laughs) It's okay, because mine's political too, so. And Janelle's not here, so... I know. <laughs> Aww. Aww. She's missing out. Yeah. <laughs> Miss you, girl. <laughs> so for this episode, I'm going to talk about the assassination of Dr. Malcolm H. Kerr, which, if anyone listening knows me, recognizes that last name immediately. Like I did. You did. I did. Which is hilarious, but not that. Okay. Tiff is a very big Steve Kerr fan. Yep. Steve Kerr, if you're listening, hit us up. <laughs> He's not, but just No, in case. don't do that. Just in, just in case. Nah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> so because I'm also like, I've never written one of these before, we're going to go heavy into like a life summary. Okay. So, so it makes sense, the yeah. assassination part. Okay. Um, so Dr. Kerr was born in Beirut, Lebanon in 1931. His American parents, Stanley and Elsa, taught at the American University of Beirut. During World War II, the Kerr family traveled to Princeton, New Jersey, where he first experienced America. Um, And then when the war ended, they returned to Beirut. Before turning 16, Dr. Kerr returned to America and finished secondary school at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts. He then went on to Princeton, where he studied international relations and specialized in the Middle East. Damn. So, like, Homeboy is well-educated. Because Princeton is, like, Mm -hmm. very... Mm -hmm. I'm making the the Italian, you know. (laughs) Yeah, but why? Because it's very good. (laughs) It's very good. This is what I do for, like, mm, choice. It's, like, my choice. Very choice, you know. I don't know. (laughs) Are you Italian at all? No, not at all. Not at all. Very German. Same. (laughs) So, like, different hand gesture? Uh, No. No. Not on this this show, for sure. No. Um, So, 
From there, he returned to the AUB campus and joined the MA program in Middle East Studies. During this time, he met his future wife, Anne. They were married in 1956 while he was working on his Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Okay. John Hopkins, another fancy school. Fancy schools. I know. I never went <laughs> to, a fa- to a fancy school. Was it fancy? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> My dorm had air conditioning. Lucky. This was, is a little, little behind-the-scenes look. Tiff and I went to the same college <laughs> for the same amount, for the of, same time. amount of time, which yep. was not four years. No, it was not. <laughs> Where'd you go right after? Uh, MCC. Same. Yep. <laughs> yep. Sorry, <Yeah>. Jesus. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Dr. Kerr's first teaching job was at AUB in the political science department. After his first two children were born, he and his wife and children moved to California so he could teach at UCLA. Okay. So it's a lot of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Which they loved. Um, There's a lot of traveling around, though. Yeah. Jesus. But it's like, it's like, it's California, well, Massachusetts, Lebanon, California, Lebanon, because like... yeah. It's home. Still. Yeah, true, true. During this time, he received a Social Science Research Council grant to Cairo and wrote his third, third, and best-known book, <clears throat> The Arab Cold War, Gamal Abd al-Nasir and His Rivals, 1958 to 1970. That does not sound very interesting, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> to me the either. exact opposite of what I would read. Yeah. <laughs> that was his third book? That was his third the the most popular one, oh. so I didn't include the other ones. But I will say that the first two were based off his um, theses. Okay, theses, theses. I think it's theses. Theses. Someone's gonna tell me if I'm wrong. I bet <laughs> if I'm wrong, <laughs> I'll hear about it. <laughs> um, Dr. Kerr then returned to teach at AUB for a year. His third child was born during that time. They have a total of four. Okay. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Dr. Kerr then returned to UCLA and shortly after became chairperson of the political science department. Kerr and his wife then had their fourth child and uh, decided to settle in the area. Okay. So from then on, like sabbaticals, they would go back. Um, Oh, gotcha. During a sabbatical in 1970 to 1971, the Kerr family spent time in France and North Africa. He received a grant to study the politics of higher education in North Africa and worked on the third edition of the Arab Cold War. Oh, Jesus. Although I feel like the, what was it, the hierarchy of educational politics that he was looking at in Africa? Um, It was... Politics of higher education. Politics of higher education. That sounds... See, that is something I would be into. Like, (laughs) that sounds really interesting to me. Um, Especially in... I feel like in Africa, like, the government plays a larger role in the the higher education Mm -hmm. happening there, too. So... Plus also just, like, general educational politics, which is very much a thing. (laughs) That would be really interesting. Dr. Kerr then spent the next five years teaching at UCLA and was appointed Divisional Dean of Social Sciences. In 1976-77, Dr. Kerr was asked to be a visiting distinguished professor at the American University in Cairo. 
from there, the family then returned to UCLA. Okay. So Back it, in the US. again, it's a lot of traveling with yeah. a family. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, two e- I never would. I, listen. With four kids. I don't have any kids currently. And you don't um, want to travel with yourself. And I can barely travel with myself. So <laughs> yeah. let's not add other people into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> two years later, the family returned to Cairo and Dr. Kerr ran the University of California Education Abroad Program. Okay. During this time, he had become a trustee of the UAB and traveled between Lebanon and Cairo. Okay. In 1982, he was asked to become president of AUB. 82. Mm-hmm. Okay. Trying to think of where, because some of the, I mean, I realize this is happening over a long period of time, but I'm like trying to keep in mind what's happening in geo world politics. So a tiny little thing I hadn't mentioned, mentioned to this point um, is the Lebanese Civil War. Okay. Which was part of the Cold War, the Arab Cold War, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the Iran-Israel proxy conflict. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Um, The Lebanese Civil War took place from 1975 to 1990, resulted in an estimated 150,000 fatalities, and led to the exodus of almost 1 million uh, Lebanese people. So was he going, like, back and forth into Lebanon during, like, the first part of this? So... Or was he... Did he kind of, like, chill out of going to Lebanon and... At that point, that was when he was going to Cairo um, and Africa. Okay. It was, like, when he finally decided to actually go back was when he was asked to be president of AUB. Okay, okay. Um, so Which was in the 80s. Yes, 1982. Okay. So it was like midway into the Civil War. So you said it was 70 yeah, and 90 yeah, something? Yeah, about okay. midway. Okay. So anyway, if you want to know any more about any of that. <laughs> that sounds very complicated. Look at the fuck up because I'm not talking about any more of that. I didn't want to look at any more of that. Um, yeah. But in spite of the political climate at the time, he decided to take the job. Okay. And I say, in spite of the political climate, consider this quote from the New York Times. Quote, Dr. Kerr's predecessor, David S. Dodge, acting president of the university, was kidnapped in July 1982 by a pro-Iranian gunman. Uh, just a side note, he was eventually released. He survived oh, good. that. But it kind <laughs> okay. of explains like, oh, job opening. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. True. <laughs> good point. Yeah, yeah. I would not want to go back. I'd be like, okay, I think I'm done here. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> um, also from the New York Times, quote, the university campus was occasionally shelled during the 19 months of civil war in Lebanon in the 1970s. And in 1976, two deans were shot to death. Um, oh, I should have prefaced it. Three people died in my episode. My bad. Oh, that's uh, fine. Two deans were shot to death on Surprise the campus uh, by a gunman whose motivations were unclear. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Regarding his passion for Beirut and the AUB, his wife wrote, quote, When he was asked to be president of AUB in 1982, it seemed like an ideal job, except for the political climate. (laughs) Which is a big part of that. (laughs) Oof. 
But it was easy to overlook the danger for the chance to lead the institution, which stood for all the things he believed in and where his parents had taught for over 40 years. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there is almost like a sense of duty to... Yeah, and you know, it's where you grew up. Yeah. It's like home and family. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I get it. Still seems very treacherous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Dr. Kerr is president of the AUB for 17 months. Okay. On January 18th, 1984, Kerr left his official residence on campus to go to the bank. He returns back to the campus roughly an hour later and heads for College Hall, the main administrative building. Okay. Um, It is crowded during that time uh, due to spring registration. Kerr enters the elevator at College Hall, headed to his office. Again from the New York Times, quote, Two other males entered the elevator with him, according to a student who was about to join them, but decided that there was not enough room and that it would not be right to crowd the university president. It's not clear if the other passengers on the elevator were the killers. Oh, boy. So we're getting to it now. The elevator arrives on his office floor and Kerr steps out. Quote, a split second later, the two gunmen stepped forward, either from the elevator or the stairwell just to the right of it, and one of them quickly pumped two bullets into Dr. Kerr's head with a silencer-equipped revolver. Ooh, no. And that was the quote, pumped two bullets. That's why I included Ugh. it, because I was just like, yeah, that's, that, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. A nearby dean ran out to see what the noise was and found Kerr on the floor and heard footsteps going down the stairs. Yikes. And then you said they didn't know if it was from the elevator or from the stairwell. Correct. Ooh, boy. Soon after, the gates of the university are sealed off and a search begins for the gunmen, but unfortunately they were able to escape. Damn. And because of, like, the political climate, they had, like, Marines and officers and everything, like, stationed throughout the university. So there was a lot of security. That's what I was security. Because I feel like a university campus is, like, uh, highly populated enough during, like, a time of civil unrest that you would want extra security there. Yeah. Um, So I'm kind of – I don't want to say I'm surprised they weren't, like, closer. But it just seems – Well, like, according to what I was reading, the the security was more lax in the morning. Okay. So they might – whoever – because, spoiler alert, they never found the people. Oh, man. But, yeah, according to what I read, that security was more lax in the morning. Maybe they knew that and took advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Soon after, a man calls the Beirut office of Agents France Press and claims the assassination was the work of Islamic Holy War, which was supposedly a pro-Iranian underground group. Okay. From the New York Times, quote, the Islamic Holy War caller told Agents France Press in Arabic, we are responsible for the assassination of the president of the American University of Beirut, who was a victim of the American military presence in Lebanon. We also vow that not a single American or Frenchman will remain on this soil. Okay. Wow. Dr. Kerr's wife later wrote, quote, the irony, of course, was that they had killed a man who understood and loved the Middle East as much as any foreigner could. Oh. Oh, and now the statement from President Ronald Reagan is Oh, promised. this is the only thing I've been waiting for this whole time. <laughs> Quote, it was with the greatest shock and sadness that we learned early this morning of the death of Dr. Malcolm Kerr, the president of the American University of Beirut. 
He was a highly respected member of the academic world who, as president of the American Institution in Lebanon, worked tirelessly and courageously to maintain the principles of academic freedom and excellence in education. His work strengthened the historical, cultural, and academic ties between the United States and Lebanon and other countries of the Middle East. Dr. Kerr carried on a family tradition. He himself was born in Beirut to parents also dedicated to the service of mankind. Dr. Kerr's untimely and tragic death at the hands of these despicable assassins must strengthen our resolve not to give in to the acts of terrorism. Terrorism must not be allowed to take control of the lives, actions, or future of ourselves and our friends. Wow. Since his death, AUB scholarships were formed in his name. The Middle East Studies Association Dissertation Award is named after him, and in October 2020, Carnegie renamed its Middle East Center in honor of him, which is an independent policy research institute in Beirut. Okay, yeah. So that's the assassination of Dr. Malcolm Kerr. They just never got the guys. Nope. Um, Yeah. So how did you stumble on this one? Um, I'm actually going to end it with a statement he made regarding taking the position of president. Quote, the only thing I'd rather do than watch Steve play basketball is be president of the AUB. What? It's Steve Kerr's dad. Is it really? Yeah. No way. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy. I had mm-hmm. no idea. Yeah. Oh, that's really sad. <laughs> and here I thought you were going to laugh hysterically when I when I finally revealed that it was like, oh, yeah, it's Steve Kerr related. Oh, my God. Of course mm-hmm. it is. I feel like I asked you that and you told me no. Did I ask you that? Maybe I didn't ask any questions. What I you, wondered. Wait, hold on. I can't remember now. Now I'm going to look at it. because I'm kind of surprised. I feel like I didn't lie to you. <laughs> you would have had moral quandaries about that. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. That's really surprising. I had no idea he had such political ties. So he ended up being a basketball coach. Yeah. Slash player, obviously. But <laughs> wow. Took a very different course than his dad. That's Steve Kerr's dad. Yeah. Wow. Steve Kerr was born in Beirut. Was he? Yeah. Oh, see, I don't... You don't follow that. Oh, you asked, is it because his last name is Kerr? And I said, not exactly. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. (laughs) I mean, it is kind of that, though. That's why I said not exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, good job, Tiff. Thanks. That was was very And I will apologize to anyone who had to sit through that and did not enjoy it. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so when you first suggested this topic, first of all, I was like, damn, I'm probably going to have to do something sort of political. Um, But also, I didn't think that I was going to find something that was, like, so close to home. Ooh. Um, But my story revolves around a man who would completely change the political landscape in the city of Chicago forever. Okay. His name is Anton Cermak. Ooh, that sounds familiar. Is there a reason? Are you familiar with that name for... Do you know why that sounds familiar? Not off the top of my head. So most people around here would know the street name, Cermak Road. There's like... And when you're taking like L stops, there's like Cermak and whatever. Yeah. That's how most people know it. I didn't know that was named after a dude, first of all. Who would think that? It's named after Doom. I probably should have assumed, because I think a lot of the street names down there are named after. I mean, other than the obvious ones, right? Right. Um, Like Jefferson (laughs) and, you know, all of those. But um, yeah, so it's named after this guy, Anton Cermak. Okay. So he, Cermak was born into a mining family in the Czech Republic. In 1873. Oh, it's an old one. This is an old story. This well, is I mean, like, it'd have to be if the street was named after him. <laughs> yeah. This is like early years of Chicago. Okay. So um, so he was born Czech Republic, 1873. Just a year later, the Cermak fam- family immigrated to the United States and settled just outside of Chicago in Braidwood. Mm-hmm. It's one of the suburbs. And as he grew up... Cermak worked with his father in the mining industry. They continued mining in the U.S. in um, Will and Grundy counties. Mm -hmm. Before they um, moved to Chicago, he moved – actually, he moved to Chicago proper and started working as a tow boy for a horse-drawn streetcar at the age of 16. What the fuck is that? A tow boy. Yeah. It's um, somebody who, I think it's somebody who leads the horses because it's like a horse-drawn um, streetcar. Oh, I don't okay. think they were sitting on top, like a carriage. I think they just had horses pulling. So he'd like walk and <laughs> I think, I think that's what we don't have. Clearly, we don't have those anymore. <laughs> so. Okay. So my brain is just like, so if there's a guy walking in front of the horses, why don't all the carriage people just walk? Because <laughs> they're too fancy. Fancy people. They're fancy people. Got it. (laughs) Walking's for peasants. (laughs) Um, So he was able to get himself an education by taking high school and business college classes during the evenings when he wasn't working. Mm -hmm. So he sort of did all this manual labor and then like at night was like – going to get himself an education. Um, and eventually he was able to save enough money to purchase his own horse and cart and started his own business hauling goods. Originally it was just wood and then he kind of expanded into other things. Um, okay. With his horse and cart. <laughs> was he riding the horses? Or I, I couldn't tell you. No idea. <laughs> it wasn't long before he dipped his toe into like political life because once you start a business in Chicago, yeah. um, you kind of like – have to. <laughs> Have to. But he actually started working as a clerk of the courts oh. and then served as 
uh, bailiff for the municipal court of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So he actually did like work, like political work. Um, this, of course, positively impacted his business prospects. Mm-hmm. Prospects, um, and he did eventually diversify into other avenues, including banking, real estate, and insurance. So fair, yes, <laughs> all of the important political industries. <laughs> his big steps into the political world came when Sir Mac began serving as a precinct captain for the Democratic Party. Things pretty quickly took off for him after that, and um, Sir Mac served in the Illinois House of Representatives from 1902 to 1909, Alderman of the 12th Ward from 1909 to 1912, and again from 1919 to 1922, President of the Cook County Board of Commissioners from 1922 to 1931, Chair of the Cook County Democratic Party from 1928 to 1931. And then he ran for a U.S. Senate seat in 1928, but was defeated by Republican Otis Glenn. So. All right. Yes. And you'll notice, like, a lot of, anytime you're, like, an alderman, anything to do with commissions, commissioners in Chicago, like, these are all pretty decently powerful political positions. So, Clearly, he like Cermak had become this political staple at this point, and he often was like leading the Democratic Party in whatever they happened to be doing. But the big job came when he was elected mayor of Chicago in 1931. So we're in the 30s. Um, his victory came smack in the middle of a bunch of stuff happening around the country for all of you history buffs. The U.S. was literally in the middle of the Great Depression. Yay. Uh, Prohibition was in full swing, which Chicago, the mobsters, people were not happy about Prohibition in general. And in Chicago specifically, like I said, there was just a really big issue with organized crime. Yeah. Um, And a lot of Chicagoans were concerned about the rise of violence following the Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929. Oh, yep. Yeah, so there's like all of these little things happening as as Sir Mac is taking office. There is also a large immigrant population in Chicago, most of which began coming in during the early 1900s from all over, including Czech Republic, Poland, Ukraine, Italy, many, many, many more. Like Mm -hmm. Chicago is really like this big mixing pot of people from all over. So at the time, these groups of people didn't really fit into the traditional political system because they, like, there wasn't really any big political movements led by uh, the immigrant community at all. So Mm -hmm. that in turn meant they didn't really have any representation on the city council. Mm -hmm. Um, But... As we know, Sir Mac himself was an immigrant, and he had been able to sort of, like, infiltrate these circles. And he felt like he was uniquely positioned to represent these disenfranchised immigrant voters. So seemed like an obvious choice. But his bid for um, mayor, however, was opposed by the Democratic Party because at the time it was largely run by Irish Americans. Yeah. So... Uh, he wasn't really, like, happy about that and decided he was just going to form his own political machine of, like, literally everyone else. 
Um, and so to like kind of combat this Irish American stranglehold. So after some very smooth networking and expert political positioning, Cermak managed to woo black voters and gain support of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Okay. Uh, which really expanded his base. Totally. Uh, Cermak's time finally came when he challenged incumbent William Hale Thompson, um, which was, Thompson was part of the Irish political machine. And Thompson's strategy basically included using a bunch of racial slurs Uh and completely ignoring the organized crime part of Chicago. Oh, yeah. Because let's be real, like, how many of the politicians were just being paid off? by the mob at the time Mm -hmm. that they are even still discovering now like in reality but voters were not fans of all of this like racial obscenity and voted Cermak in in 1931 and Thompson's political career was virtually over and Cermak had pretty much put Democrats in power in Chicago essentially to this day like he is the whole reason that Chicago is sort of like a democratic stranglehold good job guy Right? (laughs) I was like, whoo. So if you remember, Franklin D. Roosevelt had endorsed Cermak. Mm -hmm. And when Cermak was making his run for mayor, so when FDR was elected president in 1933, Cermak knew that he now had a friend at the top that could possibly help out with some issues that he was having back in Chicago. And he really, at the time, had some... Like, the one big issue that he had, and this pretty much lasted the entire time he was mayor, was this tax revolt by the Association of Real Estate Taxpayers. So they were uh, basically saying, we're striking taxes. We're not paying the amount in taxes that you want us to pay. The government was unable to collect as much money as they needed in taxes And in turn, the city was unable to pay for city services and things like education and Mm. some of these other things. So Cermak had hoped that maybe a plea to the president-elect might aid in funneling some money to Chicago to sort of help ease the situation with the city services in light of this, like, tax revolt. Okay. Okay. So... On February 12th, 1933, Cermak traveled down to Miami, Florida, where uh, FDR was making a brief stop on his return from a fishing trip in the Bahamas. Okay. (laughs) Which I guess I didn't realize was a big fishing place, but makes sense. Water. Yeah. But I'm thinking like Bahamas is like vacation destination. But I guess people go fishing on vacation. I don't know. It's not my thing. FDR. FDR does. (laughs) So just after 9 p.m., FDR stopped in Biscayne Bay Park and gave an approximately one-minute-long speech. He, like, got out of his car, walked up to the podium, gave this one-minute speech, and then, like, went back to his car. That was it. And there were, um, I think I remember reading, it was, like, 25,000 people in attendance for him coming through this. It's a big crowd. And then when he got back to his car, he sort of, he saw Cermak. Cermak was, like, kind of with all the politicians in the front, motioned for him to come over to the car to have a little chat because they were old friends. Mm -hmm. Now, also in attendance at this event is a man named Giuseppe Zangara, who was an Italian immigrant. Uh, Zangara was originally from Ferrazano, 
and he served with the Italian Royal Army during World War I. In 1923, Zangara emigrated to the U.S. with his uncle, and they settled in Patterson, New Jersey, where he got a job as a bricklayer. Okay. Okay. Uh, he did have some chronic health conditions, including severe persistent pain in his abdomen that he was told was incurable. Right. He did at some point receive an appendectomy in, um, oh, at some point in 1926, but it did not solve any of his issues. He thought it was going to be this like, oh, finally, like, oh, yeah, didn't do anything. Uh, now, just based on current medical knowledge, it's believed that Zangara suffered from a peptic ulcer. Oh. Yeah. But Zangara thought that it was a result of strenuous manual labor starting from an, a very young age, which I don't know much about peptic ulcers. I know they're the worst kind of ulcer, <laughs> I think, but I don't think they come from like strenuous. I thought they come well, me. I thought, and well. Listen, I'm not even going to try with my medical knowledge. Listen, I had ulcers when I was like 16. Was it stress? I have no idea. I was a teenager. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When in your life have you not been stressed? (laughs) Preteen? Baby. Yeah, baby. 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 (laughs) So, Zangar is in the crowd Mm -hmm. uh, at this FDR speech. He's watching Cermak approach the president-elect. Although it was difficult to see as Zangar was only five foot tall. Word. (laughs) (laughs) I was typing this and I'm like, I think this is how tall Tiff is. I'm five five, damn it. Okay, so shorter than you. (laughs) So I get it, but I also don't really get it. Yeah, he had to like reach over. He was like standing on his tiptoes to like see over the shoulders of the people in front of him to see uh, where the president and where Cermak was. And so... He stood – I saw some reports that he was standing on his toes, and I saw some that said he was standing in a chair. Um, but he pulled out a thirty-two caliber revolver and took aim at FDR over the shoulder of somebody in the crowd before firing a shot at the president-elect. Standing just behind him was a woman named Lillian Cross who had saw him – she witnessed him taking the gun out of his pocket – but wasn't able to um, react before he got the first shot off. So he shot the first shot, and then Cross and others were able to grab him, wrestle him to the ground. He's shooting into the crowd at this point as he's being wrestled to the ground. He did miss FDR, but unfortunately, Cermak was struck on the right side of his ribcage, along with four other bystanders uh, receiving wounds to varying degrees. Short people problems. <laughs> <laughs> Can't see over, get I wrestled don't know easily. Where you are. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was immediately taken into custody, Zangara was. And Cermak was, they reacted really quickly. They asked him if he could stand. At the time, he could stand on his own, and he was helped into FDR's car because he was right there, Mm -hmm. put him into FDR's car, which rushed him over to Jackson Memorial Hospital. Wild. Upon arriving at the hospital, it was determined that the bullet had pierced Cermak's right lung, right diaphragm, and liver. 
According to an article in the Surgery Journal by Theodore Pappas, quote, by 2 a.m., the physicians taking care of Cermak issued a statement that the mayor expected 50% mortality, but they were not recommending immediate surgery. So, I mean, 50% is like not great. No. <laughs> Also, they said, quote, at approximately 20 hours after the shooting, Cermak was described by his physicians as very satisfactory. So he was improving. Okay. Um, Again, his vital signs were stable and his pain from the bullet injury were diminishing. Plans for an operation were again delayed since the mare was stable and the bullet location was not causing harm. So he came in kind of on the fence and seemed to be improving. It seemed like... Really, he was going to make a full recovery. Just a few days later, Cermak was well enough to set up in bed, gave an interview to to reporters for the first time since the shooting. And although they were, like, cautious of complications, um, because at this point, Cermak was older, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they were worried about things like pneumonia or, like, the fact that he was sitting so long, like, could cause, you know, some of these, like, other complications. They were generally pretty positive about him making a recovery. Beginning on February 21st, uh, 11 days after the shooting, Cermak's health suddenly began to decline. His heart rate and fever was rising along with abdominal pain, and physicians attributed this to colitis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cermak's condition went up and down, and by February 26th, he was diagnosed with an infection in the right lung and placed into an oxygen tent. Now, this is, again, from Pappas, uh, quote, Despite some encouraging words from his physicians, there was clear evidence that Cermak had deteriorated on March 1st and 2nd. He was moved from the oxygen tent to an oxygen room to guarantee his high-flow oxygen. The colitis was still present. His respiratory rate continued at 30 breaths per minute, and hiccups started on March 2nd. Oh, no. Which I thought was interesting, that hiccups are like... I guess persistent hiccups? Is that an oxygen thing? Like an oxygen intake thing? Are I don't you, know. Do you know? That's the only thing that I could think of. Like why all of a sudden hiccups would like start because he was in these high oxygen. I mean, maybe. But it, he. you said it also pierced his diaphragm, his right yeah. diaphragm. So maybe yeah. that's part of it too. I don't know. I, I found that very strange. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't help having no. hiccups. And the bullet was still inside him, right? Yeah. It was very close to his spine, if I remember correctly. But it wasn't like in a spot that was causing issue. Right. You know, so it's, otherwise just, it's been just like in there, but it's not doing anything. Right. Right. So they say. On March 4th, Cermak underwent surgery for a needle aspiration of a right chest pleural effusion and a chest tube. So they had gone in to do this aspiration of his lung. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that was coming out was like, smelled super nasty, was super, super gross. And they were like, This is just going to keep draining. We have to put in a chest tube. So they put in a chest tube. But all of this was in vain when Cermak died in the early hours of the morning of March 6th, a total of 19 days after he had been originally shot. Jesus Christ. So meanwhile, Zangara had been taken into custody and indicted with attempted murder. Immediately after and uh, during interviews, according to the Chicago Tribune, quote, Zangara told authorities he wanted to kill Roosevelt because he represented capitalism, a system he believed was responsible for his stomach pain. (laughs) Which I initially was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But it's the stress of capitalism. in In his logic, because capitalism forced him to work at a young age, 
like work for the man to make money to mm-hmm. do and it's all goes back to capitalism like capitalism is the reason for his stomach pain oh my god by his logic i'm like i don't agree but like i get where you're going mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's a stretch for me yeah following sarmak's death zangara was instead indicted for murder all four individuals who had also been struck in the crowd made full recoveries from their injuries. Oh, good. Um, so he got an additional four attempted murder uh-huh. charges. Zangara was represented by three a three-lawyer team, but frankly, they didn't really have that much to do because he pretty much pled guilty like shortly after the indictment was changed from attempted murder to murder. Mm-hmm. Incredibly quickly after that, Zangara was officially convicted on one count of murder and four counts of attempted murder and was sentenced to death. Interestingly enough, and I kind of love, I didn't know this was going to happen, but sometimes this happens in our research where our research just like overlaps with, you know, big things in true crime history. Uh huh. And this did. Okay. I wasn't ready for it. So when. Zangara was sentenced to death. There was already in the Florida prison, there was already another inmate that was awaiting execution. And under Florida law, a person awaiting execution can't share a cell with another convicted person awaiting execution. And so Zangara was placed in his own cell. And this changed the term from death cell to death row. And that's like where we get the term death row from. Oh, holy shit. Right? (laughs) I was like, oh. Way to be horrible people, guys. Yeah. So the term death row originates from Florida because Zangara had to be placed in his own cell because there's too many people waiting execution. Two. Two. (laughs) Total of two. Yeah. Uh, So... After spending, I just, that blows my mind that that was just in there. You know what? It's Florida. I was thinking, oh, we'll just kill this guy and make room, you know? Like, let's get it over with. We'll just wait because after spending just 10 days on death row, 10 days, which might be the shortest, I don't even know, but he right away just said, I wasn't going to appeal. I'm not going to appeal. I'm not going to do any of that. Just like put me to death. So 10 days on death row, he was executed in the electric chair in uh, March 20th, 1933. That's wild. 10 That's days. Yeah. So he got convicted essentially. He was convicted and executed essentially within a month and a half of the actual shooting. Holy shit. Yeah. That's fast. Even for Florida. Like, that's fast, dude. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm still laughing about the death row and the. No, it's all good. Um, so, were I mean, obviously the the time that he was like the speed at which everything happened with Zangara's trial is kind of an issue. Were there any other big glaring issues that you picked up on in that whole thing? Oh God! Now you're making me think about it more. Hold on. Quiz time. Were you even listening? No. <laughs> I mean, I was, but my I have no control over what my brain focuses on. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So 
like I said, the speed at which Zangara was indicted, convicted, and executed is almost unheard of. It did not allow for what likely needed to be a more thorough investigation into Zangara's mental state at the time of the assassination. Fair enough. There's accounts that were actually written by the warden of the Florida prison, as well as memoirs written by Zangara himself about his time in prison and sort of like what happened while he was there, because it was like five weeks, I think, total, where, and Zangara wrote these memoirs while he was awaiting uh, execution that apparently show that he may have been closer to insane at the time of the shooting, the assassination. But because the trial was so speedy, there was not an opportunity to be evaluated by a psychologist. This is not something that any of his attorneys asked for. Like, there was no effort made to, like, look into that at all before he was executed. So it is entirely possible that they executed an insane person. Yeah. This is like one of the many reasons that I am very against death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. The other big issue actually has to do with Cermak's uh, death itself. So I didn't, it might have sounded like I did, but I did not go crazy in depth into Cermak's death. There were tons of complications that happened when he died. Uh, This has raised a lot of questions as to whether he died as a result of the gunshot wound or whether there was an underlying issue that attributed to his passing, which makes a big difference because if he died as a result of the gunshot wound, then Zangara would be charged with murder. Mm -hmm. But if he died as a result of something else, Zangara would be charged with attempted murder because ultimately the bullet wound was not the immediate oh, cause right. of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also, bef- like, early, way early in all of this, a question about, like, because he, and I didn't include it here because they resolved it really quick, but there was an issue with, um, because he was aiming at FDR, but accidentally hit Cermak, like, if he could be charged with Cermak's assassination because he was actually aiming for FDR, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. But there is this I there's this um legal idea about like transference of intent. So like even if Cermak was not the intended target, like because he was hit, it still is attempted murder or murder. Okay. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Anyway, so the article um, I referenced earlier is titled The Assassination of Anton Cermak, Mayor of Chicago, A Review of His Post-Injury Medical Care by Theodore Pappas. does a great in-depth look of the medical care and autopsy report of Cermak and sort of like what the physicians were saying for all of you medically minded folk. Like I know there's some friends of the show that are medical professionals that would really get into that shit. I read it and it was a lot of medical jargon. <laughs> I was like, I can't because I know I'd get a call from like Alec that was like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, which is true. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> but when presented at trial, the physician said uh, the autopsy showed, quote, that the gunshot wound was the cause of death because it initiated a cascade of events culminating in colitis, colon perforation and peritonitis, end quote. They were actually concerned at the time that Zangara might use their medical care as a defense for his actions, or not a defense for his actions, but a defense for the crime, for the murder charge specifically. Mm -hmm. 
But after everything was settled, physicians started coming out and saying that Sir Mac's chest wound certainly would have healed if it hadn't been for the colitis. In fact, quote, two of the physicians attending the autopsy explicitly state that the colitis, colon perforation, and peritonitis caused the mare to die, not the gunshot wounds. Oh, Jesus. Right. So the question became, should Zangara have been charged with murder or the lesser charge of attempted murder? You know, these are all questions we're never going to um, – get answered because he's already dead. They're all dead. Everyone's dead. dead. (laughs) They are all dead. Everybody's dead. Yeah. Cermak died. Zangara was executed so quickly. FDR did visit Cermak in the hospital beforehand, like, and was like, I can't wait to see you at my inauguration. Like, yeah, it's kind of sad. But there's, I mean, there's a lot of questions in that that remain unanswered and probably will forever, unfortunately. Same. <laughs> a few plaques and things have been erected in Sir Max's honor. Um, there's some in Chicago. There's some down in uh, Florida in the park where it happened. They have like a plaque up remembering him. And then, of course, 22nd Street, which runs east to west on Chicago's west side and went through these areas that had significant Czech populations. It was eventually re- renamed to Sir Mac Road, mm-hmm. as you and I know it today. But that is the assassination of Anton Cermak. What a ride. Right? Jesus. I know how to pick up, man. Way to go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, before you uh, decide to assassinate someone, first of all, don't. Second of all, check out this podcast. Woo! We're the Vocal Fries. I'm Carrie. And I'm Megan. And we have a podcast about linguistic discrimination. We talk about language, not being a jerk, not judging people for the way that they speak, and we try to have a good time. We talk about things like vocal fry, swearing, Southern American English, and prescriptive grammar. You can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Well, Tiff, that's our show. Hey, good news. I don't have anything to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was just thinking, like, do I ask you if you have anything to talk about? Yeah, we are having a pretty tame end slash start to the year so we don't really have any events or anything going on if anything changes i'll definitely let you know other than our guest host coming in which some i don't even know yet i'm we're not even past next month so like (laughs) it's gonna be a surprise for everyone including you exactly exactly cool i guess that's it huh yeah i don't even know if i turned the hype button on i didn't oh man all right well with that first of all thank you for hosting with me today. No problem. I was here anyway. (laughs) It's true. This is your house. (laughs) Uh, You will be back again in two weeks with us. Yep. So looking forward to that. Um, But with that, our sound and editing is done by the lovely, the wonderful Tiff Fullman here in studio with us. Yay. Yay. Go me. Um, Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. He made a song. He made a song once years ago, and he gets a hype button. I do this every two weeks too. I know. I put you guys in the same thing. <laughs> it's like I imagine you guys is like the oh the so production that's for me too. Yeah, that's always been for you. It's oh, like the production the whole, bubble. See, the whole time I'm just like, why does he get a noise? <laughs> no, it's because you guys are part of the our production bubble. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so that's for that's always been for you, girl. Well, yay! <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye.
was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another. Okay, now you just get to sit back for the rest of the episode. I'm so excited. I'm going to drink some coffee. <laughs>